When central banks look at what's ailing the global economy, it fundamentally comes down to low growth. And that low growth hasn't been inclusive enough. So the pie hasn't been growing enough and the benefits have gone to a very small segment of the population. That's Mohamed Alarian, the author of The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, chair of the Monk Debates, and welcome to the Next Debate podcast. The trouble is that most of the debate on these issues... We are debating an obligation we are already committed to. It comes after you and can haunt you. Any issue has caused me greater agony and anger. We are standing at the threshold of a great evolution. Very serious issues. Let's get to the point. From quantitative easing to negative interest rates, central banks around the world have become, in the words of mega-investor Mohamed Alarian, the only game in town when it comes to reviving economic growth. But when does too much central bank intervention start to become a risk to the global economy? Mohamed Alarian thinks this could happen sooner than we think, with profound consequences for the global economy, investing, and our collective political future. The future of investing in the era of central banks, next on the Next Debate podcast. Mohamed Alarian, welcome to the Next Debate podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to dive right in with your uh, book, The Only Game in Town. Uh, this book was written in the first half of 2015, I believe, and it, it very kind of presciently diagnose some of the market turmoil that we saw early this year at the beginning of 2016. What what led you almost a, a year before uh, the convulsions of the start of this year to, to sense that, that trouble might be ahead? When I started this book, I thought it was fascinating that very modest and media-shy institutions like the central banks had been thrust into the limelight. And I started this book wondering why is it that these powerful institutions have been taken out of their comfort zone and continue to be taken out of their comfort zone. As I worked on it, I realized that there were two things going on that spoke to the future of the global economy. The first is that central banks were using experimental policies for too long and that there was excessive reliance on those policies. As a result, the unintended consequences were becoming more pronounced. Second, and perhaps hardest for me, because I was part at PIMCO, of uh, the group that came up with this notion of the new normal, I realized that low and stable growth was unlikely to continue. That while it described well what had happened after the aftermath of the global financial crisis, this period of low and stable growth was being undermined by many inconsistencies, 10 in fact. So put these two things together and you come to the conclusion that the world would become more volatile, both from a market's perspective and from a growth perspective, and that at some point, the probability of a tipping point would increase significantly. Now, were you surprised that it came as early as January of this year, literally the publication date uh, for your book? 
Um, it, I, I was I was more pleasantly surprised um, than anything else in terms of the timing. But January was just the latest bout of, of volatility. Um, there was one earlier in the year. There was one in the summer of last year. And what I think is going to happen is that these occasional bouts of volatility are going to become more frequent and they're going to become stronger. And they're going to be indicative that the road we're on is ending um, and that we're coming up to this notion of a T-junction where one road ends, but what comes next is subject to choices. There's nothing predestined about it. Yeah, I, I want to go to your uh, description of a T-junction, have you explain the the kind of the moment that we're soon to arrive at. But before we do that, let's talk a bit more about central banks. Because as you, as you said, these were institutions that largely existed out of this public spotlight. They've been thrust into that spotlight. You write a lot about how they've tried to manage this new prominence that they've had. We've seen since your writing of the book, the introduction of negative interest rates, more and more aggressive, uh, assertive policies on the part of these banks. I mean, are, are they reaching the limits of their capacity? Or do, do you worry that the ammunition they have is, uh, is depleted and that this poses a, a whole new set of challenges and threats for the global economy? It's not as much that the ammunition is depleted as it's the wrong ammunition. And that if you rely on it for too long, then to use the phrase of Ben Bernanke, the former chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, you don't just get the benefits, but, quote, you get the costs and risks. I think of it more as a doctor. Central banks are like doctors. They will not walk away from their patient. The patient here being weak economic growth, like a doctor, they will try to prescribe whatever medication they have, even if it simply buys time. So central banks have been prescribing medication that buys time. It doesn't deal with the underlying weaknesses of the global economy. It simply buys time for the politicians to get their act together. Now, as any patient will tell you, at a certain point when you rely excessively just on painkillers, not only are you not solving the underlying problem, but you risk having side effects. And that is what we're seeing. We're seeing the side effects of excessive reliance on just pain medication. Now, that's not the fault of the central banks because the providers of the better medicine haven't stepped up to the plate. So think of central banks as doctors. They'll continue to treat the patient even though they know that their medication is not the correct one. Now, for, for the layperson listening, one of the big side effects that you write about, other people are talking about, is liquidity. The, the, the challenges of liquidity in this, in this new financial reality of increased regulation, but also massive central bank uh, intervention. So just explain why you think that's one of the most acute side effects and one that uh, we should all be paying careful attention to. So when central banks look at what's ailing the global economy... It's, it fundamentally comes down to low growth. And that low growth hasn't been inclusive enough. So the pie hasn't been growing enough. And in the manner it has grown, the benefits have gone to a very small segment of the population. And that is true of most countries, especially in the Western world. So when central banks look at that, the only instrument they have 
to deal with low growth is to act through the financial channel. What they basically do is they lower interest rates to such an extent that you and I say, you know what, we're not getting paid enough on our bonds, so let's go into more risky parts of the market. And to make sure that we do that, central banks have been doing something else, which they have been buying bonds directly, driving the price of bonds even higher, meaning that the yield on bonds goes lower. And in the case of Europe, it has gone negative. In fact, if you look at the world today, around one-third of global government debt trade at negative levels. So you and I, as individuals, we look at that and we say, that's ridiculous. We are not going to lend our money and pay interest. So let's go into the equity market. By going into the equity market, we boost the price of equities. And then the hope, the big hope, is that the holders of these equities, when they open up their monthly statement, they see that they are richer And because they see they are richer, they trigger what economists call the wealth effect. They go out and spend more. Then the hope is companies see them spending more, and they invest more. And next thing you know, you promote economic growth. Now, that is the theory. The practice has been that central banks have been quite good at influencing asset prices, but they haven't been as good in influencing economic activity. So you have asset prices that are divorced from fundamentals. And in addition, you have too many people on one side of the marketplace. So the minute the paradigm changes, the minute there's some question mark about the effectiveness of central banks, people rush to the door. And when they rush to the door, they realize that the door is not big enough to accommodate them. And you get these major market disturbances. So liquidity looks ample because it's central bank liquidity, but when the market is looking for true liquidity, there isn't enough of it, and you get these dislocations in markets. You're listening to The Next Debate. I'm Roger Griffiths. My guest is the author and investor, Mohamed Alarian. Coming up, I ask Mohamed Alarian to explain the consequences for investors of the increasing lack of global coordination between central banks. Debate. 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 If you're enjoying this podcast, visit us at www.monkdebates.com for outstanding public policy debates on the big issues of the day. Hear Glenn Greenwald take on ex-CIA chief Michael Hayden on state surveillance. See Tony Blair debate the late and great Christopher Hitchens on whether religion is a force for good in the world. Read Henry Kissinger's debate with Neil Ferguson on whether China will dominate the 21st century. These and other great debates, free for watching, listening, and reading, all at www.monkdebates.com. Let's go back to, again, your analogy of the patient here. You're saying, you know, we're, we're, the central banks are medicating uh, a sick global economy with painkillers, but they're not bringing, um, you know, the, the, the vaccination, the curative policy, which is more on the fiscal side as opposed to the monetary side. And I think everyone's understood that since the beginning of the crisis. But would you not agree that 
that now the prospects of large-scale fiscal intervention seem even less likely with the political turmoil in the United States, Brexit in the UK, uh, Europe on its back. I mean, it, it hardly seems as if we're suddenly going to have a moment of maturity and insight and uh, responsibility taking on the part of uh, our elected officials. So let me tell you the bad news, the less bad news, and the good news. The bad news, it's not just about fiscal. It's a lot more than that. And the book goes through the four areas where we need meaningful measures, and that has to be enabled by politicians. One is on the demand side. Some people call it fiscal. I like it to call it the demand side. And the biggest problem is that we have divorced the will to spend from the wallet to spend. Those who have money are spending less, and those who don't have money want to spend more. You see this in Europe. Germany has the will, but has the wallet to spend, but not the will. Greece has the will, but not the wallet. And, and, and Europe has had a very difficult time connecting the two. You see it also in the United States. With the growth in income inequality, the rich who have gotten most of the income gains have a lower marginal propensity to spend. They spend less of it. And therefore, there's a problem of demand. Now, fiscal would help that, but fiscal is not the only way of dealing with that. But there are three other areas. The second is that we have not invested in proper engines of growth. We fell in love with finance as a growth engine, and finance is not a growth engine. Finance is just an enabler of underlying growth activities. So we need to seriously look at infrastructure spending, at the functioning of the labor market, at corporate tax reform, and at a host of other structural reforms. Third, there are pockets of excessive indebtedness around the world. Student loans in the U.S. is a problem. Greece is a problem in Europe. And when debt gets too big, then not only does it crush the debtor directly, but it stops new capital from coming in. So you get no fresh auction. So we have to make the difficult decision, and it's very difficult, of debt forgiveness. And no one likes to do that, but at some point it becomes necessary. And finally, we have a low level of global policy coordination. And that is a problem because countries tend to pursue policies that do not add up at the global level. So the bad news, it's four big areas. The somewhat less bad news is that we know the engineering of this but there's a political implementation challenge. And as you say, the politics isn't very encouraging right now, neither in the United States nor in Europe. But the good news, and I stress this over and over again, is you don't need a big bang out of the politicians in terms of policy reactions. You need a small bang. If they do a little, they'll find out that they can have a huge beneficial impact. Why? for two reasons. Number one, companies have a lot of cash on, on their balance sheets. And if they can be encouraged to deploy that cash in a positive manner, in a manner that helps employment and production, that would do a lot of heavy lifting. Second, there are a string of innovations that used to be name-specific and sector-specific that are in the context of going economy-wide. So if the politicians can deliver a small bang of, of measures on the four areas, 
the private sector will do most of the heavy lifting after that. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Uh, let me ask you something that is always kind of uh, maybe maybe ponder and wonder. You you have a lot of exposure and access to these central bankers uh, through your work at PIMCO, uh, through your public speaking. What is the psychology in these banks? Because I think some people looking from the outside, if you're going to be a little bit cynical about it, you might say that they've rather come to enjoy their growing prominence, their super influence over their domestic and international economies. And these are not kind of benign bureaucracies. They, in fact, now have been kind of calibrated towards ever more aggressive, expansionary, and... um, experimental steps and roles. Uh, is, have I got this wrong? Are they, in fact, well-meaning, modest people who will walk away from the, you know, the temptations of power? Yeah, that's the sense I get, that they will walk away, that, in fact, they are uncomfortable. The title of the book, The Only Game in Town, comes from a central bank conference that's held every year. This one was held in France in Paris in November of 2014. It gathers the central bankers from around the world. And at the one I was there, at the one in November 2014, the host, who was the outgoing central bank governor of the Banque de France, Christian Noyer, got up and said, we are the only game in town and we don't like it. So they realize that they're the only game in town. They don't like it because they know that they don't have the right instruments. They know that they're carrying too much of the policy burden, and they are afraid not only of the unintended consequences, but they are afraid of becoming politicized. They are afraid that parliaments will look into what central banks are able to do without parliamentary approval, and start taking away their autonomy. And that is something that terrifies any central bankers. There's been a lot of research done that says that good central banking requires a certain distance from the political process. Because of that, most central banks have acquired political autonomy over time. That is a good thing. And that the last thing any central bank wants to do is to give that up. So my impression is they are on the main stage. They are not comfortable about it. They feel they have to be there. This is not out of choice, but out of necessity. But their, their real wish is to be able to go backstage again. But that, that requires other policymakers with much better tools to step up to their responsibility. Are, are you worried at the extent to which negative interest rates have experienced I don't know, exposed banks to greater political risk, what you're talking about, which is increasing criticism from legislators who seem to be, in the face of these more and more extraordinary moves, demanding greater accountability. Yes, I am worried. And you need only look to Japan to see what that danger looks like. The Bank of Japan surprised everybody by following the European Central Bank into negative policy rates. It had done, it did that with the hope that by taking interest rates negative, they would weaken their currency and therefore help their exports, and they would boost their equity market. The exact opposite happened. 
the, the currency strengthened and the equity market sold off. Within two days of them doing that, they were dragged, the officials were dragged into parliament and basically read the Riot Act. So what this episode tells you is that when you take rates negative, you risk not only getting the wrong response out of the economy, because people simply disengage at this point. Um, the sale of home safes has soared because people are saying, why should I keep my money in a bank that's going to take money away from me? I might as well keep it at home in the safe. So people disengage from the financial system. Political outcries become more frequent, and the political process starts looking into what you're doing. I think that that is a warning to central banks to be careful. The problem they have is they're not able to hand off. So again, I go back to the analogy of the doctor. Very few doctors step away from their patient, even when they start taking personal risk. And that's, that's the dilemma that the central banks are in right now. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, is that a reason why you think negative interest rates won't come to the United States, that the Janet Yellen would just consider the political risk of that move being greater than the potential positive effects uh, on the economy? Yes, and not just the political consequences, but there are massive institutional consequences. We have built a very sophisticated capitalist system that assumes that nominal interest rates are positive. So the minute you take them negative, things start breaking. For example, banks start turning away deposits. Second, providers of long-term financial protection, pension funds, insurance companies find it very hard to sell new products. They can still service the old products, but it's very hard to sell new products if the safe interest rate is negative. So you start creating institutional breakage in the system. And there are no other institutions to step in. It's not as if you can replace them. You cannot replace something with nothing. So the system starts operating less efficiently. So you get the political cost and you get the economic cost at the same time. And I think that the Federal Reserve realizes this, and they would like to avoid. Now, they're lucky because the U.S. economy is in a better place than Europe. Um, but having said that, even if the U.S. economy were in the same place as Europe, I don't think that, that they would go to negative. One of the things that comes across in your book is the uh, your feeling the importance of international coordination. It, it really reached a high watermark after the financial crisis. It's a large region, reason we were able globally to dig our way out. But looking forward, are, are, again, are you concerned? We saw those extraordinary moves on uh, by the Swiss Central Bank on its currency. You've just talked about Japan. There seems to be a growing kind of unilateralism, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a beggar thy neighbor attitude in some of these banks as they seem more and more desperate to revive growth. I am concerned. I, I think that the, we are living in a very globalized world, that the, the actions of certain central banks have enormous consequences for others. So I would put in that category the U.S. Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the People's Bank of China. Um, and what we're seeing increasingly is this global orchestra 
that is interlinked. We're sitting in the same concert hall. I'm seeing that the different sections of this orchestra are not just playing to different music, but also look up and they do not find a conductor. So the IMF, unfortunately, is not able to play the role of global conductor. So imagine that you're sitting in the room listening to an orchestra where the different parts have different music and they have no conductor. It's not a very coherent outcome. <laughs> Cacophony. Absolutely. And that is what's happening right now in terms of global policy coordination. Now, the important thing is how you started the question. There comes a point, and that point was reached at the end of 2008, when countries come together and realize that the challenges that they're facing at home are not unique, that other countries face exactly the same challenge, and that what you need is a shared response and shared responsibility. That is what we got after the global financial crisis. That is what resulted in the most successful G20 meeting in April of 2009 in London. And again, it's this notion of this Sputnik moment, this notion that everybody's being threatened by what's happening in the global economy, and it's time for us to come together and address this. Unfortunately, we may need a crisis to create that wake-up moment, to create that Sputnik moment, um, but we have the mechanisms that can be used to deliver global policy coordination if countries are willing to coordinate. You're listening to The Next Debate. I'm Rudyard Griffiths. My guest is the author and investor, Mohamed Alarian. Coming up, I asked Mohamed Alarian to explain how investors can protect themselves in an era of massive central bank intervention in the global economy. Debate. 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 If you're enjoying this podcast, check out my exclusive interview with Mohamed Alarian in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Log on to www.globeandmail.com for thoughtful commentary and analysis on the issues and debates driving the public conversation. Again, that website, www.globeandmail.com, Canada's national newspaper. In our remaining moments, I want to shift to your thoughts as to to what investors should do. How should they react to this? I mean, if we are going to move, uh, and I think you're right, um, into an era of increasing volatility, you know, what does Jane and Joe public do in terms of how they should think about their investments and, frankly, how we should protect ourselves? So let me start being a little bit technical, then, then I will convert it into what the average person can do. Believe it or not, most of the traditional wisdom that we apply as individual investors is related to three sets of numbers. The first is what is the expected return from each asset class? If I invest in equities, what am I expected to earn? The second is the variance or the volatility of this expected return. Is it going to be stable or is it going to be highly volatile exposing me to all sorts of emotional roller coaster that I may end up selling at the wrong time or buying at the wrong time. So the second element is the volatility. And the third element is what's called the covariance or the correlations among asset classes. If bonds go up, what happens to equities? What happens to commodities? So most of us have grown up with certain assumptions about expected returns 
about volatility, and about correlations. The world we're living in right now undermines these assumptions. First, on returns, we have borrowed returns from the future. That is what central banks do. They borrow returns from the future in the hope of triggering better fundamentals that then validate and push the returns higher. So the first thing to realize is we have borrowed returns. We are living on borrowed returns. The second thing to realize is we're coming out of a period of artificially low volatility that's going to give way to unusually high volatility. And the third thing we have to realize is because central banks have intervened in markets so aggressively, they have altered the correlation among asset classes. These are three consequential hypotheses. If you agree with them, then a few of the conventional wisdoms start being challenged. And the individual investor should realize that. The first one is that diversification is enough for risk mitigation. As long as you have a diversified portfolio, that's enough. That's no longer true. If correlations break down, then diversification, while still necessary, is not sufficient. Second is that you should just be a long-term investor. Don't worry about the short term. But if you're going to have massive volatility in the short term that can break out one way or the other, you need to pay attention to the short term. And the third assumption that changes is that cash doesn't belong in a strategic asset allocation. If you read a basic investment book, they'll say, have minimal amount of cash. Cash is a dead asset. That's no longer the case. In fact, cash is the only way to get proper protection in the world we're living in. So I tell people, you have to think about cash being 25 to 30% of your strategic asset allocation. At the end of the day, the individual investor needs three characteristics in their portfolio to be able to navigate what I believe is coming up. Resilience, the ability to navigate a lot of volatility, optionality, the ability to change her or his mind when you get more information, and agility, the ability to move quickly when others are still like deer stuck in the headlights. And those are the three things that I think are really important, and it says a lot about how we make decisions and how we frame issues. And that's why the book has this section on behavioral element. It's very important to understand how we make decision make how we make decisions on the unusual uncertainty. Well, Mohammed Alarian, always thoughtful, always provocative. I really urge listeners to to check out The Only Game in Town. It was eminently readable. Uh, it held me to the last page. And uh, Mohammed, just congratulations on a great balance of kind of historical insight, real world reporting, and then the back half of the book really drilling down into some interesting uh, science and thinking on how how we can think our way out and through uh, these problems. So uh, a, a masterful piece of, of work, and I uh, hope you're very proud of it. Thank you very much. And I really appreciate this conversation with you, and, and, and thank you for everybody who, who's listening. Mohamed Alarian was my guest today on The Next Debate. For more of Mohamed's take on investing, central banks, and the future of the global economy, be sure to search out his new book, The Only Game in Town, Central Banks, Instability, and Avoiding the Next Collapse. 
Visit the Next Debate webpage on www.monkdebates.com for the full transcript of this episode and my interview with Mohamed Alarian in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Thanks for listening to the Next Debate podcast. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, chair of the Monk Debates. Thank <laughs> you.